maybe 10% of the whole party. So I thought I would talk about uh, the idea of uh, changing your mind. You know, uh, the... um, the uh, uh, annual uh, sort of concert on the lawn and, and in uh, Central Park put on by uh, Tricycle Magazine is called uh, Change Your Mind Day. And um, actually, it's a great title. Uh, I, when I wrote my first book, I wanted to call it I Changed My Mind. Um, <laughs> and it got voted down by the marketing department of... Uh, uh, of the publishing company because they said no one will get it. You know, I thought it would have a subtitle about uh, what it means to do to do mindfulness meditation or the goals of mindfulness meditation, something like that. But they said, I changed my mind. is like, who's on first? And no one will know what that means, so we can't do it. So they called it It's Easier Than You Think, which is a little bit of a specious title because it's actually harder than you can imagine. <laughs> And, uh, but it became it became tremendously popular and sold a lot of books. I think because people like the idea of it's easier than you think. It's very easy to talk about changing your mind, but it's very hard to actually affect a change. So I've, I've always been thinking about what changes our mind actually. Uh, and I've and I've mentioned here in the last several months that I've been reading a lot about neuroscience and the new discoveries in neuroscience and how they relate to meditation and uh, how mindfulness has become part of uh, really the lexicon of modern psychology. You can look all over the place. There are workshops in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and mindfulness-based stress reduction and... Uh, what else, Linda? Mindfulness-based? Dialectical behavior therapy. Sensory motor therapy. Relapse prevention. Relapse prevention. And everything is, you know, uh, and it makes sense, actually. Uh, so I've, and the, the current word that people like, I think, more than any other word, because it's so hopeful. You know what word that is? Neuroplasticity. Everybody gets that. And they get so excited. You mean my neuron's going to fire in a new way? So you think, would, it, would that it was so? You know, yes, it would be great to have the neuron that always fires. Ah, this is a catastrophe. Instead, said, no, I don't know if I should worry about this. You know, it would be great if you could really do that. And there's some considerable research that the the habitual traits of the mind change from doing a mindfulness-based practice. So I've been very interested in that. And then just the other day in the mail, uh, I've been reading and reading because I wanted to finish it before I got here because I really wanted to read from it to you. I will. I, well, I hope they'd finish it, but I didn't get it all finished. But been, uh, the, Someone said, you really need to read this book called On Being Certain. By Robert Burton. Robert Burton is a psychiatrist, uh, is a neurologist. He's the head of the um, department, uh, associate chief of the Department of Neuroscience 
at uh, Mount Zion UCSF. He lives in Sausalito, California, and his uh, website is rburton.com. So he's really a neighbor of ours, and it's brilliant. I really have enjoyed it so much. I'm kind of halfway through it. Um, and he talks about the feeling of being sure, of being certain. So I wanted to talk about a couple of things. I wanted to talk about, starting from uh, the uh, traditionally Buddhist point of view, why, why is that... Uh, why is that concept relevant to a class of meditators, for instance? One of the things that the Buddha taught is that uh, there are three things that if human beings would really get, then their mind would relax and they wouldn't struggle so much with their lives. They'd live with more peace and more ease. And the list of those things is called the three characteristics of experience. And the notion is that Every experience has, there are three truths that pertain to the whole of everything in this world. Everything arises and passes away. It's a universal truth. We have idiosyncratic truths, things that are true for me but not for other people, like a certain a thinking trait. But for everything, everything that arises passes away. That's just a truth, according to the Buddha. Everything is linked to everything by a web of causality. Things don't happen uh, 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 without a uh, without a cause. You know that uh, uh, books are often criticized. I remember uh, mystery books that, in the end, a mystery is solved with a piece of information that you didn't have before, or something comes in in a magical way. The cosmos is not that. That things happen because other things happen. In Buddhist terms, we call that karma is true. Karma is a very misunderstood concept, I think, in uh, in the West. The the and maybe all over the place, but karma is also is often meant uh, taken to be a kind of morality to to involve morality. If you behave badly then bad things will happen to you, if not in this life, in another life. If you lead a just and righteous life, the karmic fruit of that will be you'll be reborn into a better life. It comes from a culture that took rebirth into another lifetime as a given. And that's not actually true in the West. We, it, it, it's, in a, it's paradoxical because we don't take rebirth as a given. It's not part of the cultural context of the West. Yet it's very interesting to people. Like uh, mostly, they hope they'll get another shot at this, you know. That, uh, but actually, in the context of the Buddha, in a time when life was really more difficult, and the Buddha talked about life being suffering. We have the same suffering that people always did in terms of the loss of things that are dear to us. But on a manifest level, and certainly in, in our part of the world, we're not suffering so as much as people might have been in those days, just on a day-to-day basis. Our lives are easier because of medicines. Our lives are easier because of all kinds of things that that make living a life and feeding yourself and taking care of yourself easier. But from the Buddhist point of view, life itself is so endlessly um, endlessly challenging 
that you really don't want another lifetime. So the, really the goal is to not continually be wanting more and another shot at it and another shot at it. You want to actually exit out of this life with a mind so free of all clinging that it doesn't produce another lifetime for you is really fundamental Buddhist theory. We don't talk about it very much. I think because in the West we wouldn't mind another life, actually, as I said before, it, uh, especially if we had a good one in this one, you know, and had a good time in it, so that it was interesting, the idea of no more life ever. But from the point of view, certainly of Theravada Buddhism, no more life ever is the desirable place. But leaving that aside, the idea is that things happen because other things happen because other things happen. If you're walking down the street and a tree branch falls on you, it's not necessarily because you misbehaved in a former lifetime and chopped down a tree on the top of somebody or something or other. More likely that you happen to be walking under that tree just at the time that that tree happened to be debarrassing itself of that particular limb that, that landed on you. So I think that we have much more an understanding of karma as things happen because other things happen. That tree was ready to fall off, the, that limb was ready to fall off the tree, and you happen to be walking under it at that time. That happens all the time. When people get a terrible illness and they say, why not me? And yet it, somebody mentioned so-and-so got a diagnosis. and you know, Many of us have gotten a diagnosis of something. And then you think, why me? Not everybody has this. Why me? And then you think, why not me? Somebody gets this. People get this. People get a wide variety of things. And not everybody gets everything. And I don't know that it's parceled out. You're going to get this and you're going to get that. What I don't resonate with myself, I may be wrong completely, so I won't put that out that way, is that we get certain things for certain reasons. You know, the moral, we needed to learn from it. All of my friends who have gotten very sick and those who have died from, from illnesses have told me, um, I've learned a lot from being sick, but the truth is I would have rather not learned <laughs> and rather not been sick. You know, spare me the learning. Usually it was in terms of I've grown so much emotionally, but if you want to know, I would have rather not grown emotionally. And not have it. Growing emotionally is not as good as living. Living is better. But the the idea of cause and effect, when you know that things happen because because this is a natural world and there are there are thousands of people on the beach in Phuket when the tsunami comes. My cousin was there, and he left six hours before the wave. So, you know, why did he leave and someone arrived arrived at the beach six hours before the wave? You know, they didn't have any inside information. It just happens like that. So that causality, and really, in the point of view of the Buddha, he was not teaching it particularly because of this, you get that. It's just that things happen, and things happen for such a vast uh, as such a, a result of such a vast complex of things that when something happens that to you, it's not because of this or because of that. It's really because of everything. It's because you have this body or you were in such a place at such a time. He said if you knew that, that really it's out of your hands. It's out of everybody's hands. That nobody did it. That the universe did it. That you tend to not be so ready to be angry at it. You say, well, this was my lot. 
something happens to everybody. So I'm telling you all this because here is a bit of saying, if we really understood that things happen because of such a, a vast number of reasons, we could never comprehend karma, then we could relax, say, well, I guess this is my karma. He said, if we really understood things arise and pass away, really all our experiences are ephemeral, we'd be all right with getting old and we'd be all right with losing what's dear to us and we'd be all right with uh, uh, the different challenges and pains and losses of our life because we'd say nothing lasts anyway, you know, that this is just the way of the world. You have moments of pleasure. Somebody... uh, from time to time, somebody will say to me, Buddhism is a very gloomy religion. It's not very gloomy. I, I said that to one of my teachers once. I said, this is also sad. He said, it's not sad, it's true. That's what it is. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be sad. He said, sad is a story that you tell about it. Because in a certain, uh, in a certain sense, it is poignant. It is definitely poignant. Everything is a show, has a time-limited it's time-limited. You don't know what the time is. We count on when we have things and people that are dear to us that they should last a long time, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they even last a long time, and then they end. And what's poignant is that we miss them anyway. I mean, a 93-year-old parent who dies, we feel bad. And everybody says, you know, they lived in the fullness of their life. They did. And they may have said, I've had enough and all of that. But when you get up the morning afterwards and they're not in this world anymore, it feels different. And you remember the anniversary of their death and their birthday. It's poignant that human beings have those relationships. But the Buddha said, he didn't say poignancy didn't exist. He said, you didn't have to suffer about it. You could say this is the way of the world. I particularly remember that um, in... uh, what was the name? It's a, it's a book by Nikos Kazantzakis. Zorba? It's not Zorba. It's... Hmm? No, it's not that one. It'll come to me. But it begins with his... Gra- it's an autobiographical book, and it begins with his grandfather's death, and he recalls going up the mountainside because the grandfather in a, in a farm up the mountain is dying. Report to El Greco. Report to El Greco. Report to Greco. Report to Greco. There you are. Thank you, Linda. Report to Greco. So they go up the mountainside, and they gather around the grandfather, who says, take me out into the yard outside the house on, on his bed. And he gives instructions. Uh, and he says, uh, take care of the animals, the sheep and the cows, because they're just like people, only wearing different clothing. And uh, for the funeral feast, don't be... Uh, stingy in the preparations, make enough food for the people who come. And then he blesses all his children and grandchildren, and then he says, my time is coming, turn me around to the setting sun, I'm out of here, poof, and he dies. (laughs) And I remember reading that maybe 30 years ago and thinking, wow, you know, I was very impressed by that, that ability to say, my time has come, goodbye, take care of yourself. Now that I'm telling it to you, it seems like not so unattainable a thing to do. It seems like a reasonable thing to do. If you know everything has a time. The third of those three characteristics that the Buddha said uh, was true, he said another fundamental truth of life 
is that uh, suffering is the tension in the mind, the imperative in the mind, that things be different from how they are. It's really another way of saying the second noble truth, too. It's the same as the second noble truth. That suffering is the imperative in the mind that things be other than what they are. They're like this. You get this diagnosis or this doesn't go right. Or the my friends who uh, were invested with Bernie Madoff who have lost their entire life savings, everything, who are now faced with having to say, it's gone. My, one of my good friends... Um, is one of the people in that circumstance. Also a very long-time practitioner here at Spirit Rock. And she said to me, when we I, we went out a couple of weeks later and spent some time together, and she, I asked her, how did you feel just when you got that phone call that told you about that? So she said, well, I was certainly frightened because of all my money is in it, and she's my age, and so all my money was in it, and... I don't know how I'm going to make it to the end. and you know, We don't have any other money, my partner and I, except the house we live in. And I can't work that much longer. And She said, so I was bewildered and I was dismayed and I often get up in the middle of the night frightened. What am I going to do? She said, the only thing I never was was angry. She said, maybe I was a little angry at myself because my friends told me a while back don't put all your eggs in one basket," I said. But you know, he had such impeccable credentials that I I thought it would be fine. She said because I just knew all the time that anger would be extra. I'm suffering enough the way it is. I don't need the anger. And that's actually one of the more heroic stories that I've heard in a long time, testifying to the value of this practice. So. The reason I wanted to talk about this is when this person told me the anger never came up. She didn't have to talk herself out of being angry. It just didn't come up. She said it was as if I knew in my bones that anger was extra and I'd suffer more. So you could re-say that that third characteristic of suffering, of experiences, suffering, I am the cause of my own suffering by the habit, habits of my mind. And, you know, when we really know that and we really see those habits of clinging, it has to be otherwise. But it's not otherwise. That money is gone. Really gone. It's not otherwise. Who knows? People will sue. Maybe they'll get a little bit back. Maybe they won't. Maybe they won't have the money to sue. Who will do it? It's a mess. But for the most part, a lot of individuals and a lot of major foundations are massively handicapped now because of that. She said, I knew that anger was extra. So I was thinking about um, the, the feeling of knowing. And I, I brought it up. I was talking to my colleagues uh, yesterday, uh, Carol and James and Guy and Sally. And I was saying, you know, I'm interested in um, how we teach about insights. And these are the insights of experience, those characteristics. So, you know, we teach about it, and in a certain way, we get a glimpse of really everything passes. First of all, who doesn't know any of that stuff? Of course everything passes. I mean, here we are suddenly at whatever age we are, whatever situation we are, 
and our whole life has passed. So in a certain way, we know everything passes. In the middle of some uh, cataclysmic event in our life, we don't feel like it's going to pass. We feel like this is going to be the terrible pain forever, in the middle of a uh, catastrophic loss, in the middle of some difficulty. Our own wisdom, everything passes, isn't there for us. Everybody knows that everything is out of our hands. If a car flies over the midsection of the highway and lands in your, in your lane, it wasn't your fault. Who knows, maybe it wasn't their fault. Maybe the steering wheel was faulty. Maybe there was ice on the road. Who knows? Who knows? But maybe there was no fault. It just happened. If we know that things are out of our hands, then they're just out of our hands. If we know that the habits of our own mind make this extra suffering, maybe those habits that we really, really know cease to arise. So I, I, we were talking about it, and I said, well, maybe there are levels of knowing, though, because when we are... Um, another way of saying that, that that characteristic of experience of everything is caused by everything... We're all linked together. There's no one in here that's planning the destiny or in charge of the destiny. And in fact, one of the aspects of that everything is linked connections insight is that there's no single thing in here that's enduring and separate. It's a very peculiar to Buddhism concept, which is central to Buddhism, that there's no separate self that owns the experience. Experience arises and it passes away. I mean, today we're not having yesterday's experience. Yesterday's experience passed. We don't own our thoughts. We don't make up our thoughts either. You know, if we could, they'd be much better than the ones we have. (laughs) Thoughts arise and feelings arise and emotions arise, but they arise. No one owns them. They just happen. There is awareness but no ownership. And I said, you know, that that thing about no ownership, though, people actually get it, I get it, most people get it, that I don't breathe. This body sits here and breath goes in and out of it because my lungs work and because the biosphere still works. I don't have to remember every breath, breathe, don't breathe, breathe, don't breathe. It's not a volitional thing. So I said, well, some things are volitional. I wonder how much is volitional and how much we are actually pushed around by habits and we imagine that there's an I who's deciding. I said, you know, however much you know, there's no one in here who owns this the experiences of this life. If a devastating experience happens, you hear about somebody you care about died, some awful thing happens a lot of people, there is suffering arises and pain arises. And one of my colleagues said, maybe not. If you really, maybe not suffering, maybe pain that you would feel that would be accompanied by compassion. But maybe not suffering if you really, really knew that this was true. You were certain. There was this feeling of certainty that there's no one Maybe that's why in my friend no anger came up. Maybe she, who would you be angry at? The system, greed, hatred, and delusion. What would you be angry about? So I've been very interested in what makes, 
I, I, I've been saying to people for 25 years since I began teaching, we get glimpses of the truth, and then we don't seem to be liberated once and for all. We have a glimpse, we have another glimpse, and still another glimpse, yet again a glimpse. How many glimpses? And I have friends and some of my teachers who said, you get continual glimpses until you actually really know it. The glimpses are insights and they consolidate finally into wisdom. And then some people have unshakable wisdom. I do not. If I get startled enough, my wisdom is unavailable to my waking self. I can't. And then when my mind calms down, I can remember, you know, what can I do? I can't do anything about that. But in the middle of a startle, maybe not. So I've been very interested. I had a teacher who said we go from a small K to a big K, a capital K, over time. And yet there are stories of people who suddenly get it and never again are they caught in greed, hatred, and delusion. And they are sure. So I'm very interested in this book about being sure. I'm going to read you some of it. Because um, it's also interesting to me when I'm sure about something. This is another part of it. Like when I have a point of view about something, a fixed view. It's annoying to my mind to read something that challenges that view. Isn't that not true for you? It's annoying to my mind. And this is uh, this is a couple of weeks ago, Newsweek. Uh, uh, Obama's America and uh, it's a very nice inaugural issue of which I bought many different ones so I'll put them away for my grandchildren or something and the last uh, the last page of this is George Will who's a conservative columnist and uh, he's a very good writer and has wonderful word use and uh, he writes this essay, uh, the, the gist of which is that it's true that uh, President Bush left office with the lowest rating of any president ever. But he says, you know, I'm not so sure that it was a terrible job. Uh, and he goes on to make several points about how he could see what he did from his point of view about Iraq, about this, about that, in a way that comes out positive. This was a clear intent. This prevented that. This was a good thing. In the flow of history down the line, 50 years from now, we're going to look back and think what he did by going into Iraq was a good thing. And I read it uh, for a variety of reasons, but one of them is George Will is a bright man, and he writes very well. And I could feel how annoyed my mind was (laughs) to have him... Make a reasonable point. It's like I made up my mind, don't annoy me with facts. <laughs> but there is, you know that feeling in the mind where it's annoyed because someone is shaking my tree in a certain way. And uh, Michael Lerner uh, of Tikkun Magazine sent out an email this morning with three long essays on uh, how President Obama is failing to live up to the Hopes and expectations. He's there for two weeks, you know, like <laughs> failing to live up to the expectations of the constituencies that elected him. And my mind says, give him a break. Let him be there a little bit. But then you read through and you think, you know, 
from the point of view, it's true. The environmentalists and the civil rights group and women all elected him, and there are some appointments that you have to think about. And then I think to myself, before I have a view on Michael Lerner, Michael, why are you doing this? I think to myself, you know what? Uh, I don't know who's right. I don't know if Michael's right. I don't know if George Will is right. I don't, I don't know if... Since taking office, President Obama has become privy, he has become privy, I'm sure, to a whole lot more information than he had before. And the information on which I am making the judgment, this is a good appointment, this is not, is not as big as the information on which he and his people are making those decisions. I don't have that view. So I think to myself, could I have a not view? Could I have a a view of don't know? I don't know. You know, I can wait and see. But, so that's one part of on opinions. On the other thing about being certain that certain things are true, having a view. My friend knew so well that anger wouldn't make a difference, that anger would make it worse, that it just didn't arise. That was very thrilling for me to hear about. So here's this uh, Robert Burton who... uh, talks about the sensation of knowing. Um, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. So now I have all these pages that I want to read to you. i read this piece of the preface. So there's a, there's a feeling in the brain of certainty. I know this. And he said, despite how... He said, this is the premise of this book. Despite how certainty feels, it is neither a conscious choice nor even a thought process. Certainty and certainty and similar states of knowing what we know arise out of involuntary brain mechanisms that, like love or anger, function independently of reason. That's very alarming in a certain way. Uh, there's a very famous... Uh, wait, wait, wait. It could be 57. I don't even remember this. Do you remember when the Challenger spaceship exploded? There's a, there's a, there, was a very, there was a psychological study done uh, about that. The, the Challenger, alas, you probably remember, exploded. Do you remember where you were when you heard about it? You think you remember? Well, you were you watching it on TV? The takeoff. How many people were watching on the TV? I was actually. So there, there was a uh, just after that, several days later, in a psychology class, I think in Stanford. I'm not finding the exact page. They had people. Uh, they had people write in a little journal how they had felt when they saw this or heard about it, where they were exactly when they heard about it, and how they felt. And two and a half years later, they collected all those people back, either individually or as a group, and they asked them the same question, where were you, how did you feel? And they wrote again where they were. And 10% of them were right about where they were and how they felt. But they were so sure that they were right because they remembered that it was in such and such a place talking to so-and-so when it happened that even when they gave them the original notebooks back, 
written in their handwriting. They said, this is a mistake. I wasn't there. I was here. Now, that's really very powerful stuff. What to make of that? The feeling of knowing. Um, Kurt Wise, by the way, had a BA in geophysics from the University of Chicago, a PhD in geology from Harvard, where he studied under Stephen Jay Gould. And he had a professorship at Bryan College in Dayton, Tennessee. And he writes of his personal conflict between science and religion. I had to make a decision between evolution and scripture. Either the scripture was true and evolution was wrong, or evolution was true and I must toss out the Bible. It was that night that I accepted the word of God and rejected all that would ever counter it, including evolution. With that, in great sorrow, I tossed into the fire all my dreams and hopes in science. If all the evidence in the universe turns against creationism, I would be the first to admit it, but I would still be a creationist because that of what the, that is what the word of God seems to indicate. That's so interesting. Huh? What? I'm afraid I said so stupid. Well, wait, wait, no, because it's a neurological thing. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to tell you about, okay. Mr. C, an elegant uh, retired art dealer, was hospitalized and overnight with a small stroke. The next morning he felt well and was discharged. Within moments of returning home, he phoned my office in a panic. He was certain that his favorite antique desk had been replaced by a cheap Levitz reproduction. Hurry over and see for yourself, he said. He lived near my office. I dropped over by lunchtime. The desk in question was a massive 18th century Italian refectory table that took up most of his den. It could easily sit a dozen. Just lifting it would require a minimum of several men, and it was far too wide to fit through the doorway without removing the French doors. I quickly pointed out the impossibility of someone sneaking in, (laughs) moving out the desk, and substituting a fake. Mr. C. shook his head. Yes, I admit that it is physically impossible (laughs) that the desk has been replaced, but it has. You have to take my word for it. I know real when I see real, and this desk isn't real. He ran his hand along the grain, repeatedly fingering a couple of prominent wormholes. It's funny, he said with a puzzled expression. These are the exact replicas of the holes in my desk, but they don't feel the least bit familiar. No, he announced emphatically. Someone must have replaced it. After all, he said, I know what I know. This is very interesting stuff. Tell you a little bit more. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so I'll read you some more things. That we know things. Uh, So first of all, there is um, the feeling of knowing. To dispel this notion that the feeling of knowing has to be attached to a thought. Feeling of knowing does not have to be attached to a thought. This chapter will briefly touch on such seemingly unrelated phenomena as spontaneous and chemically induced religious experience, Dostoevsky's epileptic aura, as well as detailed temporal lobe stimulation studies. 
to experience the range of these states of knowing unassociated with specific knowledge, let's begin with the centuries-old classic, The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James, which for me remains one of the most elegant testimonials to the power of clinical observations to explore the mind. This is Tennyson, Alfred Lord Tennyson. I have never had any revelations through anesthetics, but a kind of waking trance. People used to actually do experiments with chloroform. People have always been drinking things or sniffing things <laughs> because there's that lure for some unusual state, still drinking things and sniffing things, sometimes um, not, uh, sometimes unfortunately. But I've had a kind of waking trance, this is a lack of a better word, that I've frequently had quite up from boyhood when I've been all alone. This is this trance. This is not using anything. This has come upon me through repeating my own name to myself silently till all at once, as it were, out of the intensity of the consciousness of individuality, individuality, individuality seemed itself to dissolve and fade away into boundless being, and this is not a confused state, but the clearest, the surest of surest, utterly beyond words. By God Almighty, there is no delusion in this matter. It is no nebulous ecstasy, but a state of transcendent wonder associated with absolute clearness of mind from repeating his own name over and over again. We might say that modern... Uh, psychological m- modern understandings of the repetition of a of a mantra or a phrase so collect the focus that the sense of a separate self disappears and a sense of shared humanity replaces it. It's all the better, you know. It's wonderful, especially if he's not if Tennyson is not doing it through a synthetic, but just through his own focused mind. But then again. It's a manufactured mind state. Is that actually true? Is it? One day, St. Teresa said, it was granted me to perceive in one instant how all things are seen and contained in God. I did not perceive them in their proper form, and nevertheless the view I had with them of them was a sovereign clearness and has remained vividly impressed on my soul. This view was so subtle and delicate that understanding cannot grasp it. And Henry William James says, Personal religious experience has its root and center in mystical states of consciousness. Its quality must be directly experienced. It cannot be imparted or transferred to other. In this peculiarity, mystical states are more like states of feeling, feeling than states of intellect, although so similar to states of feeling. Mystical states seem to those who experience them to be also states of knowledge. They are states of insight into the depths of truth unplumbed by the discursive intellect. They are illuminations, revelations, full of significance and important, all inarticulate though they remain. As a rule, they carry with them a curious sense of authority for all time after. That's interesting. You have that experience and you are changed. Think about uh, all, you know, I'm thinking a lot. I think about people who have conversion experiences where suddenly something happens and they know that the divine is omnipresent. What does that mean? 
Does that mean that the divine is omnipresent? Or does it mean that their brain for some moments was focused in a particular way that altered its perception in some extraordinary way? And does it matter? And how does it matter? And um, Let's find something else with that. Clearly we're not going to get through all of this. Not yet, not yet, not yet, but I think he will. Uh, okay, here's another person. that uh, William James described the phenomena with several... Oh, chemical activation with myst- of mystical states is almost as old as the most ancient psychedelic. William James described the phenomena with several anesthetics, chloroform, ether, nitrous oxide. The following chloroform-induced mystical experience is a good example of chemically induced cognitive dissonance. The knowledge that the mystical experience is a result of mundane chemistry does not negate the nagging and lingering sense of the certainty of God's existence. That's a very interesting thing. You you smell chloroform, you have some experience, you become convinced. Okay, here's the thing. I cannot describe the ecstasy I felt. Then as I gradually awoke from the influence of the anesthetics, the old sense of my relation to the world began to return, and the new sense of my relation to God began to fade. Think of it, to have felt purity and tenderness and truth and absolute love, and then find that I, after all, had no revelation that had been tricked by the abnormal excitation of my brain. Yet this question remains, is it possible that the inner sense of reality was not a delusion, but an actual experience? Is it possible that I I felt what some of the saints have always said, what they always felt, the undemonstrable but indisputable certainty of God? Very interesting. What do you say, Linda? That when you experience love and safety and trust, and that's the person that's flowing in the brain, it can go into that same blissful, rapturous sense of God, and it feels just as real and just as true as everything you're describing. Yeah, yeah. So it's very, you know, I'm not, I'm not up to what does this mean about, what does this mean about God? What does this mean about representations of God? What does it mean about multiple religious formulations? What does it mean? I'm not ready to say. I, if you, if you can do another ten minutes, I want to read you such a very beautiful. I, I just find this so fascinating. The description, I mostly have trouble when I start reading neurobiology books, neuroscience. They get so intricate with hippocampus and this and that, and I don't know enough neurology. I'm learning it. But he's writing about a hidden layer that we yet have to figure out, the neuroscientists have to figure out, between the experience that we have and the actual perceptions, what the data that goes in by the time it surfaces into the conscious brain talking about uh, artificial intelligence, people who build machines that are uh, computers that are, have artificial intelligence. They play chess, they play checkers. The artificial intelligence, and he gives an example. Here's um, the hidden layer of that all elements of biology and all past experience, whether remembered or long forgotten, affect the process of incoming information. So here... The first time you uh, 
was about the artificial neural network that that runs uh, the. You know, when you go on Amazon, it always has a few suggestions for you. <laughs> the first time you log on to Amazon, there are no recommendations. The artif- the network has no idea of your preference. Through the math, the, though the mathematical equations are in place, they are useless without your input. Then you begin surfing the site. Each click onto a book inputs information into the intelligence database. Gradually, a pattern develops. Book become, books become ranked in relation to each other and waiting. Depending on whether you clicked onto a book only or pursued by reading a sample chapter or purchased the book. Obviously, for Amazon, a purchase will be more heavily weighted than a rejection after perusing a sample chapter. In in effect, the program learns your preferences and which books, if recommended, you are most likely to buy. That program has formed the equivalent of the neural links between your initial purchases and similar books at Amazon. If, when you start using Amazon, you only searched for and bought crime novels, Further suggestions would be primarily in this genre, with some overlap to the most closely related areas like true crime or biographies of Sherlock Holmes. The more crime books you buy, the more the underlying neural network would be weighted towards recommending similar books. Then your wife fires a volley of disparaging comments about your reading tastes. After some reluctant self-examination, you glumly concur. You agree to a moratorium on loading up on pulp fiction. Instead, you will read only existential philosophy and plays from the theater of the absurd. You click on Pinter and Beckett, and you order a copy of Waiting for Godot. The next time you boot up Amazon.com, you will still get crime novel recommendations, but at the bottom of the list is a recommendation for Camus' The Plague. Sounds a bit like a thriller, so you order the book. The next time you sign on Amazon... There are recommendations for books by Sartre and Ionesco. Elmore Leonard's latest is further down the line. If you stop reading crime novels long enough, the weightings of crime novels within the database will gradually revert to zero. In essence, the program is learning your taste by keeping a detailed track of what you read and don't read, purchase and don't purchase. It's building a relational database, one that is continually adjusting according to new experience. You can say that your database is having an experience. If you like the hard-boiled dialogue of Raymond Chandler, it would seem logical that you would be more likely to appreciate Jim Thompson's The Grifters than if you preferred Henry James's prose. If so, some static algorithmic program might be able to make pre-programmed recommendations, but line-by-line programming cannot mimic the inconsistencies and unpredictable nature of taste. It will continue to give the same recommendations until it is rewritten. By contrast, the program is continuously learning from its mistake. It can monitor its recommendations by accessing your purchases. If it's right, if you buy both Henry James and Elmore Leonard, despite their apparent differences... The program will get immediate feedback about your idiosyncratic aesthetics. Subjectivity, whimsy, all sorts of unpredictable correlations will all be included in their weightings. Even the purchases of others affect the weightings. If 1,000 Elmore Leonard readers suddenly buy a Daniel Steele novel, (laughs) you might become bombarded with recommendations for her latest romance. 
if we were to envision each book on Amazon as a neural, as a neuron connected to all the other available books, also neurons, we have the beginning of a model of a neural network. How a book relates to another book is being constantly recalculated based on the shifting relationships of all the books. This is an important conceptual point. The reader can keep track of which books he's clicked onto and tabulate his input. He can record the recommendations made by Amazon. But the world's smartest artificial intelligence consultant cannot tell him in advance why the program acted as it did. There's no underlying program that contains a reason. The process depends on the entire set of interrelationships, none of which are fixed. Sounds tremendously like the unfolding of karma, doesn't it? You know, It's not predestination. It's always changing. One can extract a piece of the network for independent observation. One cannot extract a piece of the network for independent observation any more than you can pull a single strand, a strand out of a Persian rug and infer what the rug's pattern will be. So, this I'm ahead of that, but I, this is what I promise you. Are you interested in this? I'll finish it and tell you the sum of it next week. But I'm very interested in, first of all, that, we, that neuroplasticity may have something to do with what I just read about when you change, you can teach them, I don't want to call it the machine, you can teach the program to deliver back different information as you put in future inputs by what you choose or don't choose now. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about the certainty concept because I think your mind has to be conditioned to want certainty to be able to be the kind of person who says, that was change, or now I believe in God, or else you can be the kind of person who's open to that experience and it means something to you, but you don't necessarily have a set, limited, one definition meaning for it. So that, like the woman who had the stroke who wrote yeah. the book, did you read that one? Yeah, I did. You know, and how she accessed that part of her brain yeah. and how happy she is. And that's all she had for a while. Yeah. And then how happy, and that is that transcendent. And she's very open to what it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, she doesn't have to nail it down that that's God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all very interesting, which is why I'm so interested in it. I mean, I, I just find this fascinating, I think, to myself. Just what I've told you so far, but I'm thinking about this feeling of certainty. If you have a discussion with someone who has a belief system that you say, you know, how can, for instance, I might think to myself, I, I, whatever my religious understandings are, I cannot believe that every word of the Bible is exactly true because it at least has snakes that talk and donkeys that talk uh, uh, in it. And I don't think that either snakes or donkeys talk. But so that every word can't be true. And uh, and besides, you know, they're, they're like there are date discrepancies and other things that are wrong. So I think I'm quite prepared to take it as a very valuable metaphor. And I have a lot of respect for those stories as being the compilation of Western metaphor um, uh, cultural stories for millennia and that we can reinterpret them as you read Aesop's fables. Or, or, now, Aesop's fables have a moral. Sufi stories that don't have a moral that cause you to think, huh, what could I do? So I'm quite prepared to take it on a level of metaphor. But there are people who don't and who can't not do that. I mean, that feeling of certainty... 
And I wonder about that because he goes on to talk about you can stimulate pieces, part, uh, parts of the brain that it, apparently, by the way, it's, uh, it's not painful to do that. The brain doesn't have um, uh, pain receptors on it. So they can do experiments. I don't know how they do it, maybe while doing brain surgery or something. But if they touch somewhere, then the person says, I have a feeling of dread, not you know related to anything. They touch somewhere else. The person says, I have a feeling of familiarity, like I've been here before. And sometimes in life we say, oh, deja vu, I have such a feeling I must have lived in a last life here. But who knows, you know? And maybe you did and that part gets activated, or maybe you didn't and the part got activated and so you impute that to the situation. It's just tremendously interesting. What an amazing time we live in. So I also want to find out what my mind is doing when it reads George Will and it says, don't tell me. So, you know, what is, what's, what's going on in there? Because that's painful to me. It would be great if I had a mind that says, wow, look at this. He's, you know, he's much more learned in, in, in foreign policy than I am. He's made a lifetime out of it. It shows me how brilliant the idea of emptiness is mm -hmm. because that opens everything up that we tend to close down with our reasoning parts of our mm -hmm. mind and interpretation. And to cultivate another completely, you know, alternate mm -hmm. view of reality mm -hmm. um, that starts with that, you know, you can't say it in one, you can't say you do and don't believe in emptiness mm -hmm. in that way, you know? Yeah. Actually, in the end of, uh, the, it also, what you remind, what's your name? Kate. Kate. What you remind me of is the last stanza of the um, Metta Sutta where it says the pure-hearted one, uh, freed from fixed views, mm -hmm. is not born again into this world. And that seems to me so potent, you know? The pure-hearted one being freed from fixed views. Free of fixed views, being freed from sense desires. I'll bring it to you exactly next week. We'll do. I will bring it to you exactly next week. Is not born again into this world, and I, you know, whether it's born again in a sequential life or born again into a moment of confusion, which is how I more normally interpret that. Take a breath. Wish well for everyone in this world. Pray for rain, <laughs> because we really need it. May we and all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.